Welcome to the Dr. Junkie Show, a podcast about things that get you high. I'm your host, Ben Boyce, and today we are going to talk about cocaine. That powder that you stuff up your nose on the weekend has traveled thousands of miles. Hello, welcome. This is the Dr. Junkie Show, 2022 edition. And I guess some things have changed since the beginning. I don't often go back and listen to old episodes, but I was planning to talk to somebody about cocaine a few weeks ago, and I thought, what the heck? Why not listen to my own episode on the way there to refresh my memory? It was my second episode ever, and oh boy. You don't realize how much things have changed until you go back and look at your early work. Yikes. So for those of you who want to know about cocaine, but don't want to suffer through 30 minutes of rushed, staticky, throwback Dr. Junkie, I decided to revisit cocaine this week. And I decided to start at the beginning, with cocaine production, because from the very start, it's easy to spot the many ways that our current war on drugs is designed to make sure it will never end. Most of the cocaine used in the United States comes from South America, either from Peru, Bolivia, or Colombia. Off-the-grid farmers, called cocaleros, grow small crops on tiny farms, sometimes just a few acres, to avoid eradication efforts by both their own governments and the United States. Throughout the last 50 years, the U.S. has spent tens of millions of dollars on strategies like spraying carcinogens on suspected coca crops from overhead, often dousing the landowners and their cattle in the process. But there's so much land that this would never work. We would have to spray plant killer on the entire jungle, which it sometimes seems like the U.S. is willing to do. When they do manage to grow a crop, these farmers are the worst paid of anyone in the cocaine chain, except for maybe the street-level hustler who sells just to get by. Farmers can harvest each bush three to five times every year, and the task leaves them bloodied and exhausted since it requires stripping the leaves off of the branches without killing the plants. The cocaine is in the leaves, which, once dried, are worth as little as 3 US dollars per kilogram. It takes at least 220 kilograms, that's around 500 pounds, of dried cocaine leaf to produce just 1 kilogram of cocaine powder. If a farmer has a good harvest, that's around 2 acres worth of bushes. A good year might net a farmer around 3 grand, total. The starting point and the ending point of illegal drug sales are both defined by poverty while everyone in the middle has the ability to get rich. That 500 pounds of coca leaf will be dragged into the jungle, mixed with all sorts of toxic chemicals, and, if all goes well, turned into a kilogram of cocaine hydrochloride, what US consumers call powder cocaine. On the way from leaf to powder, it'll go through many stages, one of which is a freebase stage, where it's nearly identical to the crack cocaine you might buy on the street. Powder cocaine actually requires more processing than freebase, not less. So from leaf to market, the farmer breaks even or barely makes a profit. The manufacturer will have invested about a thousand bucks to turn raw leaves into powder cocaine, which he could just sell in Colombia for five times that amount. Or he could take it to Mexico, where it's worth around $12,000. But the big money comes if he brings it all the way to the southern United States, where that same kilogram will fetch a cool 20 grand on its way to the heartland, where it's worth more than 30 grand. 
At that point, the price skyrockets as dealers start cutting it with fillers and breaking it into smaller bundles. It might fetch half a million dollars by the time it's consumed. But by that point, it's also stopped making its sellers as much money as it did in the middle. Street dealers are seldom any wealthier than the growers. But you can still make a quick buck selling dope at street level. And if you're desperate to pay your rent or to feed your kids, the prospect of making 50 bucks to run a small baggie from one apartment to another can be pretty damn hard to pass up. That's why the system will never eliminate drug dealers the way it's currently designed. You can't arrest your way out of a situation like this because there's too much easy cash to be made and too many desperate people who need that cash. Cocaine and heroin are more valuable by weight than gold on the streets. To end this drug war, we would have to focus not on supply, but on demand. The only way to get rid of all illegal drug dealers overnight is to get rid of their customers. We have to give people somewhere else to go to get those drugs for cheaper prices. And once we've established such locations, we'll know where to focus our efforts at treatment, therapy, group counseling, and medical care. The solution's right in front of us. I do a ton of homework before I publish these episodes. What takes a minute of airtime to say might take an hour to research, write, and then edit. But sometimes I still get stuff wrong. And one place that happened was the original episode when I talked about cocaine and alcohol. When these two drugs are consumed together, a third chemical called cocaethylene is produced in the body. A few interesting things happen when we take these two drugs together. Most incredibly, the production of that third drug. Our bodies usually break drugs down. They seldom build them for us. But even more incredible, alcohol and cocaine have short half-lives. Cocaine's half-life is around 30 minutes, although it loses its effectiveness much faster than that. And alcohol doesn't have a typical half-life like most other drugs. But on average, a 180-pound male can process one beer per hour. A great piece of knowledge to have if you want to make sure you don't wind up too intoxicated to drive home later. Both drugs leave our system super fast. But when you combine these drugs and wind up with cocaethylene, its half-life is extended by three to five times. That might sound like a good thing, but as you'll see by the end of this episode, it really isn't. The part of cocaine that's really enjoyable is a small percentage of how long the drug remains in our bloodstream. But that half-life is consistent from start to finish. So our 3-minute buzz becomes a 10-minute buzz, sure. But that also means our 10-hour hangover is now a weekend of feeling like shit. It's pretty important to know the results of combining drugs before you go into a use session. It's too bad we don't use all that drug education time in schools to explain important things like this. What I got wrong in the first episode was that cocaethylene is not more toxic than either drug alone. I'd seen studies that make it seem like that might be the case, but Dr. Carl Hart's work has shown that this is usually just the result of the longer half-life of these drugs combined. It takes longer to recover. I did get that part right. When we take cocaine, our levels of neurotransmitters called monoamines go through the ceiling. Monoamines include dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine, and they all spike in relatively equal proportions when we take cocaine alone. But when we take cocaethylene, we wind up with more dopamine in our brains than when we just take cocaine alone, along with less serotonin and norepinephrine. That's probably why users experience the combo of drugs as less anxious and tense than with cocaine alone, but the payoff is seldom worth the cost. The biggest part of that payoff 
that hangover period of recovery is lost sleep and what we lose along with it. I've been learning a lot lately about the benefits of healthy sleep patterns and the way that lost sleep affects us negatively. Cocaine and other stimulant drugs affect our ability to sleep, and they prevent deep sleep when we do manage to nod off. That's a problem because deep non-REM sleep is, among other things, when we move our memories from short-term, the hippocampus, to long-term, our cortex. And when you don't sleep, the reason your short-term memory is shit is because it's full and fragmented. That nightly dose of sleep is vital to weeding out the important stuff from the day that's worth remembering and the bullshit that's worth forgetting and then emptying the short-term memory out for another 16 hours of consciousness followed by another night of sleep. There's a lot more I could talk about related to a good sleep schedule, from our immune systems to our emotions, but I don't want to get too far out of my lane here. I totally recommend Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. I'll probably invite him on the show sometime soon to talk about all the stuff I'm not qualified to talk about. The point is, get your sleep. In the earlier episode about cocaine, I shared a story about Freud that took way too long to get through about how he talked his student, Emma Eckstein, into getting her face operated on under the faulty notion that her turbinate bone, that's in the nose, that its removal would improve her depression. Freud and his fellow doctor sliced her open, packed her nose with cocaine and gauze, then cut out the bone and sewed her up. A few weeks later, they discovered a wad of gauze they had left in the wound. Oops. Emma experienced lifelong health issues because of the unnecessary surgery. See, I told you it took too long. Today I want to share another story about Freud, a man who truly loved cocaine. He talks so highly of it that it's hard to figure out if he was really having a very different experience than most of us, or if he was just lying to himself. Emma isn't the only bizarre story involving Sigmund Freud and cocaine. But when I think about Freud, I think about his days contemplating the mind while taking cocaine. And I can understand why he came to many of the conclusions that he ultimately came to. Most of us know about the id, the ego, and the superego, the three parts of our brain, listed from monster to angel, that Freud said work together to balance out our sense of being in the world. And we probably know about the Oedipus complex, which basically started the conversation about children being sexual beings who slowly learn to repress some urges even as they grow into others. But what all of these metaphors were based on were Freud's true beliefs about human nature, beliefs that I found myself fully engrossed in during my graduate program a decade ago, beliefs which are now taken for granted in the medical community. Freud saw the world around him falling apart, even as it appeared to be in a better position than ever before to rid itself of poverty, disease, violence. It was almost like humans didn't want to build a perfect world free of suffering and hate. World War II forced him to run for his life at a point in his career when he would otherwise have been settling down. He witnessed humans thrown into lust and rage by this new device of propaganda called the moving picture. And it all flavored his beliefs about what humans ultimately are, in his view, violent monsters barely contained by the social contract. I used to write when I was on cocaine. And what I would often find in the morning was scribbled and convoluted, but deep as hell, odd conclusions that were difficult to reach when I wasn't on the drug. I can imagine Freud madly scribbling his thoughts about what drives humans, and coming to realize that society sucks, but that it's all we got. Without it, we would all just kill, rape, and torture each other. 
Civilization, he said, is the result of us all agreeing to suppress the worst of our urges under the belief that everyone else will do the same. The entire point is repression, to be sure. And that made his career, because psychoanalysis is one of the only ways to work on the trauma of living in a repressive culture. That repression, which he saw as destroying us from the inside out, was the only thing preventing us from self-obliteration, if only barely. Cocaine is fun, sure, but it's also blunt and blinding. It's a light switch, not a dimmer knob. It opens channels of thoughts and produces a feeling of affect that is overwhelming in a sweet, syrupy way and incapable of being turned off. Given how cocaine works, this makes sense. It literally ups our feel-good chemicals whether we like it or not. And perhaps entering that mental space as often as he did allowed Freud to see just how much humans desired to enter their own mental space of joy and fulfillment. Most of us can remember a buzz or a feeling that was so good, so crisp and starkly different from that drab of daily existence, that we knew it couldn't last even as we desperately wanted to hold on to it as long as possible. I think Freud was willing to admit the power that that place had despite our cultural requirement to stuff those feelings far away from conscious thought. Freud eventually died of a drug overdose. Not accidentally, though. He had a physician inject him with a massive dose of morphine on a day in a time selected by him, when his health became too bad for him to want to carry on. Of course, we all know the story of Coca-Cola using cocaine in its early recipes, but most of us don't know that the cocaine they used wasn't mixed with soda. It was mixed with wine. Pemberton's French coca wine was just one of many cocaine-laced potables you could buy in the United States prior to the 1900s. And it was a vice shared by tons of people who did just fine in life. Popes, army generals, famous inventors, popular authors, even queens. None of them were shy about their indulgence. And seldom did anyone experience life-interrupting consequences from use because cocaine was legal, pure, and most importantly, they didn't have to lie to their friends and family about their use. That meant that when drug problems did pop up, and I'm sure they did, they were easy to spot, openly discussed, and, to some degree, dealt with without shame. So Pemberton's wine was just the latest brew to hit the market. And years later, the first drug to be removed from the brew was alcohol, not cocaine. That wasn't because of the law, it was because of racism. Once the booze was gone, Coca-Cola was advertised as a temperance drink. Cocaine is an alternative to alcohol. Imagine that. The cocaine was removed in 1903 because, of course, the same system of repackaged white supremacy was at work. White folks had been using these drugs for as long as they'd been available, but only after the Civil War had black folks been allowed to purchase and consume what were before largely whites-only products in the South mail orders opened up a whole new world. Georgia's high percentage of black citizens is the main reason they were so far ahead of the country in prohibition of both alcohol and other drugs. But in 1914, cocaine was outlawed nationwide. And that's when the real trouble began. I've taken a few shots at explaining how cocaine works in the brain. And I've even had a few guests who did a better job than I do. But we're at that point again when our biology does things that are simply indescribable with words, even when we know the science. So let me take a different approach today. I grew up religious. I mean really religious. Talking in tongues, 
having someone else interpret your talking in tongues using English words, being slain in the spirit, basically knocked out, intoxicated by Jesus, and all sorts of other behavior that's best described as intoxicated and intoxicating. We even called it drunk in the spirit. The difference between that intoxication and a pint of whiskey is mostly in the come down. The half-life of spiritual intoxication appears to be incredibly short. You can pop out of it anytime you want and drive home safely a few minutes later. The point is, as a kid, I saw people do all this stuff that made it seem like they were having some sort of experience that was far beyond my puny understanding. That they were feeling something that was impossible to deny and so incredible it evaded words. I was never slain in the spirit or hit with the drunkenness, but I did participate and it is indeed intoxicating. It was cocaine that finally made me say, oh, there is a place in consciousness that is so electric, exciting, and rewarding to go to that some people will do anything to get there, even if it comes with all sorts of negative consequences. Now, I'm not saying religious experience is like injecting cocaine, not by a long shot. I'm saying that cocaine helped me understand just how much is going on behind the scenes in our brains, just how much difference they're capable of producing in our conscious experience of the world. So I'll take one more stab at this, admitting ahead of time that these descriptions don't really do justice to the experience, just like explanations of religious experience don't do justice to them either, but they're all we've got. Cocaine, amphetamines, including methamphetamine, and MDMA, also known as ecstasy or molly, which is an amphetamine as well, they all work in the same fashion in the brain and body. Together with more easily accessible and therefore safer chemicals, like caffeine and nicotine, they comprise a class of drugs referred to broadly as stimulants, the most widely used class of drugs on earth. Unlike opioids, alcohol, or benzodiazepines, which don't produce enjoyable effects in some substantial portion of the people who try them, stimulants are basically enjoyed by everyone who takes them in a controlled dose in laboratory settings. A full 16% of people who try opioids don't like them at all. Virtually everyone loves cocaine. Stimulants speed up your body, hence the name. I had Dr. Grizel on a few weeks ago, and we discussed the fact that all drugs work this way, an axiom which became central to her work as a neuroscientist. To really understand what any drug is doing, you have to first understand what the body normally does compared to what the drug makes it do. In other words, what's speeding up or slowing down and how much. With cocaine, the speeding up and slowing down has to do with those monoamines I mentioned earlier. All of them. Dopamine, serotonin, melatonin, norepinephrine. Which is why cocaine seems to have such far-reaching effects which are somewhat unique to every individual. These neurotransmitters do different things in all of us. The first time I realized I was an addicted person I wouldn't have called it that at the time, of course, was well before my 10th birthday. I can't even recall how young I was. My dad packed the family in the car for some sort of outing in town, and on the dirt road leading to the main highway, yeah, I grew up in that sort of country environment, he pulled the e-brake and spun the car around 180 degrees without stopping. I was in heaven. But my sisters and my mother, who had experienced a very similar release of neurochemicals, they were horrified. Everyone has different responses to drugs, so you can't understand someone's experience with addiction because it's just not possible. 
There's a lot of empathy in that realization. All drugs cause a combination of tolerance and sensitization with repeated exposure. Users become more sensitive to some of the effects and less sensitive to others. I've talked about why this happens before, but the short story is that any time your body reads something as exciting and, as such, as dangerous, it works to recognize it faster and faster, eventually before it even gets into the bloodstream. Our brains are pretty clever. They can notice the room we usually go into, the smells and sounds of cocaine being crushed or prepped for injection, and most importantly, our brains notice themselves. The small changes that come with anticipation of drug use, they trigger a cascade of additional changes aimed at making sure we know this possibly dangerous substance is headed into our bodies. That's sensitization. Tolerance, on the other hand, again, the short story, it develops whenever our brain recognizes something as good, pleasant, and safe. It's the opposite of sensitization. Tolerance results in our brains adjusting body chemistry as rapidly as possible, eventually before the drugs even hit our bloodstream, to make sure we can tolerate more of the things we see as safe without fear of overdosing. Of course, the unfortunate consequence for long-term drug users is that we now have to use more of the substance to achieve the same good effects which once showed up with super small doses. Meanwhile, the negative qualities of the drug show up faster and hit us harder the longer we use. It sucks, but if we tried to get high forever, our bodies wouldn't let us. You can use drugs often, but you can't use them non-stop without finding, rather quickly actually, that they just don't work anymore. With drugs like alcohol and opioids, this usually plays out during a daily session, and eventually we crash out, allowing our biochemistry to readjust overnight, although not quite back to baseline. But with stimulants, we often wind up binging for days on end. And during that time, we lose our ability to get high at all. Meanwhile, the paranoia and tweaking, the medical name is stereotypy, it shows up faster and faster. In other words, our sensitization to the bad and our tolerance to the good both go way up. Tolerance and sensitization also develop on two levels, long-term and short-term. Anyone who spent a day smoking weed or drinking way too much coffee knows that the last cup or joint of the day doesn't medicate you as well as the first cup or joint. In long term, that morning joiner cup does less and less the longer we use it. Sensitization also shows up. But there isn't much about coffee or marijuana that the body reads as all that dangerous. So we don't have the extreme response to those things that we often have to cocaine. With cocaine, that sensitization tolerance cycle is taken to its extreme, and we find ourselves desperately wanting to use cocaine at the same time as not wanting to use it. That's what cocaine addiction feels like. There's an infamous experiment where researchers gave rats daily doses of cocaine by opening a door with an alleyway behind it, which they could walk down to receive an injection once a day. At first, the rats love the coke. When the door opens, they charge down the hallway and stomp on the button that leads to the injection. But as the days progress, their behavior changes. Sensitization and tolerance do their work. By day 14, they start to act in ways that anyone who struggled with an addiction to cocaine or amphetamines can relate to. The door opens and they charge down the hallway, but then they stop. They turn away. They turn back. They stand there for a minute. 
They want to, but they don't want to. They hate the cocaine, but they love the cocaine. They always push the button in the end. But clearly something is happening that reveals the body's amplification of negative effects of cocaine and simultaneous muting of positive effects. I am, of course, describing the opponent process, which any longtime drug user knows well. Drugs we take daily often require titration, increases in doses to achieve the same effects, which once came with lower doses. We drink far more coffee or beer than we used to as kids, and these things don't quite provide the easy bang they once did. Our SSRI depression medication worked wonders for a few months, but now we feel ourselves slipping back into depression. The opponent process is our brain's way of returning the body to a state of homeostasis. So cocaine, and to some degree amphetamines and MDMA, they don't work directly on receptor sites, which is why they actually have far less side effects than most drugs. And it's probably why they don't result in traditional physical dependency so much as emotional and mental dependency. Urges to use, not needs. Cocaine never even enters or binds to neurons at all, although amphetamines and MDMA sometimes do. Instead, cocaine disrupts the recycling action of monoamines. It blocks the actions of chemicals that are supposed to mop up our dopamine, serotonin, melatonin, and norepinephrine and return them to the original neuron for future use. That's it. Cocaine, as well as amphetamines, boost those neurotransmitters by simply leaving them in the space where they would otherwise be removed. Monoamines are involved in regulating our hunger, sleep, sex drive, and our sense of well-being. So by stopping the cycle whereby they're usually quickly vacuumed up, our synapses become packed with neurotransmitters that are normally only there for a split second. That means you can sort of think of cocaine like a sustain pedal on a piano. Where life is usually about short stimuli and a return to baseline, cocaine makes those feeling and senses stick around much longer than they otherwise would, even as additional messages come pouring in. That's why it doesn't take long for the neurotransmitters related to reward to pile up and make us feel great. The neurotransmitters related to getting pumped to pile up and leave us full of energy. The neurotransmitters responsible for feelings of well-being to pile up and leave us feeling super well. The problem is that pesky opponent process. When our body recognizes that too many dopamine or serotonin receptor sites are occupied for far too long, it not only downregulates its own production of those chemicals, it also upregulates the production of the reuptake chemicals, which will long outlast the cocaine unless we redose and then redose again. If you've used cocaine, especially intravenously, you probably agree that this description is lacking the flesh and blood of real life. It's not enough. But that's all I can find. So I'll keep asking the professionals I talk to if they can perhaps offer a better description. And as always, send anything my way that you think explains the process any better. I'm always down to talk about more things I got wrong. And maybe I am indeed just missing something that someone else understands. Something that makes the flesh and blood a bit more capable of being put into words. Until then, love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce.